Good to see you here. If you're new, uh, my name is Joel, and we have teaching from the Bible, uh, from the book of Matthew at the moment. We're going through Matthew. Uh, over the, the last few months, we've been going through it really slow. We're in chapter 9 at the moment, and uh, we are going through a series of stories, brief stories that Matthew gives us, where Jesus meets with individual people and uh, provides some kind of example of God's mercy and power in their lives. And so these are all examples of the goodness of God shown in Jesus. They each one give us a, a chance to glimpse what, how, how God wants us to see him, how God wants to be known. Um, and so I, I'm, I'm finding each one of these, these weeks that we're, we're doing, Matthew, uh, feeding my soul because I'm getting to see Jesus up close again. And it's doing me good. I hope it's doing you good as well, but it's definitely doing me good, so it's worth it. Um, we'll, we'll just keep doing it as long as it does me good. Um, but uh, that's, that's where we're at with Matthew chapter 9 and verses 27 to 34. And then we'll pray and then we'll get into it. So uh, the words are going to come up. I think we've got a video with the reading. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. And he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. Let's just pray before we get into this. Father, we thank you for your, your kindness in speaking to us at all. Lord, you've graciously given us scripture to, to lead us, to, to open our eyes, to see Jesus. And we pray that you'd send your Holy Spirit so that these words uh, won't just be information today, but they'll penetrate our hearts and cause, cause them to come alive with, with love for you, with, with trust towards your son and obedience towards him. Uh, we want to live our lives fully, uh, not semi-live, not partly live, but fully live uh, in union and fellowship with you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Please speak to each one of us. Perhaps just in your own heart before we move on, just pray. Say, God, please do speak to me now in Jesus' name. Maybe you're not used to praying, but you can pray. Just say in your heart, say, God, if you're there, please speak to me. Amen. Okay, so this finishes with Jesus' uh, opponents, the Pharisees, uh, going for a conspiracy theory, basically. They, they refer to him as in, in league with, with evil, in league with demons. That's, that's how he's got power over evil, because he, he is evil himself. That's how he's doing it. Uh, they're reaching for an explanation, an explanation for his gifts, for his abilities, and they're reaching for a desperate explanation. But it, it reminds me actually of, of the idea of a double agent. And maybe you've seen those uh, mystery spy thrillers where 
you're not sure which side a certain character is on. You can't quite nail down if, if, if this person is, is on the, or the one side or the other. And it's, it's actually not till the very end sometimes of, of the story when it's uncovered and you, you get clarity about, oh, this person all along was actually a traitor, actually working for the other side. And they may have actually covered their tracks by, by doing things that seemed to harm uh, the people they were betraying. Uh, or, sorry, harm the, harm the other side. And it looks like, well, this, this must be one of ours because, well, they, they've, they've worked for us against the other side. And then you find out later, all along, it was a, it was a confidence trick. And I suppose the Pharisees are, are kind of trying this kind of a story out. They're saying, well, yeah, he's, he's got some kind of power, but, but look, this must be some kind of hoax. It must be that actually he's, he's really actually in league with evil power. That's the only explanation we can possibly choose. That's the only one we can accept. And it can leave, I'm sure, people confused when you have a story like that. You spend ages in, in, in perhaps it's a film or a book or a series, you know, like a, a box set, and you're kind of thinking, oh, yeah, but who's she working for? And who's, who's on the side of that one? You just kind of, you're trying all the time to untangle it. And that's hard enough when it's just a made-up story, but when it's over the really important issues of life and death and truth and falsehood and good and evil and, and God and no God, I mean, those are the really big questions. We find it very hard to put up with confusion in a story, but confusion on the biggest questions of life can actually be exhausting. How am I ever going to really be able to decide? How can I land the plane? How can I just decide and just, how can I be sure? How can I be persuaded that I really, I'm really sure of God? I'm really sure of, of the, the, the possibility of whether Jesus is real, whether he's true, whether he's trustworthy, whether he's real. And, and this, this struggle with confusion can, can actually make us weary and uh, kind of suck the life out of us. It's striking to me that Matthew, he actually, he's already told us on the very first line of his, his book, his story, who Jesus is. So he's, he's, he's cool with people's weird conspiracy theories making it onto the pages of his book. He's, he, he, he shares them with us. He doesn't try and censor them out. He doesn't say, well, some people said that Jesus was evil and demonized and filled with the devil, but let's not mention that in the Bible. That would be really awkward. No, he's cool with it. He says, no, no, put it in. I'm sure Matthew is so confident and so persuaded about the, the reality of Jesus and the, the obvious fact about who he really was that he, he didn't mind the kind of wackadoodle theories coming in as well because he knew that they wouldn't stand up against the 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 testimony he was going to give. He's saying from the start, actually, who he is convinced Jesus is, who he thinks Jesus to be. And it's actually there, like I said, in the first very line of his gospel, when he's just starting it off, the kind of opening line, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. The son of David. He's saying, from the start, he's saying, Jesus is the one. He is the son of David. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the great hero, the great saviour. 
the great rescuer, the great deliverer, the great champion we've waited for, the one our hearts have longed for. He's the, the one who's come to fulfill all of our longings and yearnings. Now, for you and me living in, in Brighton, 21st century, son of David is, is a meaningless name, but, but given this context, it, was, it, was, it, meant, it meant everything. Son of David was the one they'd hoped for, the one who would be like their previous King David, back when they were a strong, great, advancing nation, but greater still, David's greater son, because such a one had been promised. When you read the pages of the Old Testament, you see this hope beginning to emerge and grow and get stronger and stronger. And you, you, you get into the, the books of the prophets, especially where there's this massive momentum and expectation. And it gets poetic and it gets kind of like a big musical. You know, it kind of, it's like it's, it's so stirring. It's like we, he's coming. He will come. This great king, this great warrior, this great champion. He will surely come. We wait for him. He will fix things. He will rescue us. Let his day come. And in a way... We even now, centuries later, we kind of know something about that, that sort of yearning that's characteristic of, of the human heart in different ways. We kind of, we, we tend to find it natural to put our hopes in a possible champion, possible deliverer, a possible saviour. If you're a football fan, you do it almost every year. You do it certainly when there's a new manager at your club. It's like, you know, could this be someone who will take us up, who will take us to greatness? And on a political level, we, we, some of us who've lived long enough, we've, we've seen examples again and again of people putting their hopes in a new leader. This one, this is different. This one, he or she will, will, will take us into a new epoch. And that's happened a few times in my lifetime, enough times for me to sort of get a little jaded about it, but cynical about it. But the fact that there's that tendency in the heart to long for the great, the great prince, as it were, is, is interesting, it's telling. Maybe there is something that God's planted in us, that we know that there's someone we're born to know, someone who's born to, that we, we're born to be rescued by. We're born to hope in that kind of a figure. And the Bible's full of this, and the Bible presents this as the hope for the world, in fact. One who really will deal with the real enemies, the real problems, and, and fix everything effectively and set us free, deliver us. So this is the way that Matthew sets it up. Jesus is that one. He's the son of David. He says it from the beginning. So unlike most mystery thrillers, he's given it away in the first line. It's a bit more like Columbo. None of us remember Columbo because we're all too young. I definitely don't remember Columbo, uh, but, but if, I, if I was old enough and you know, was an adult at the time when, when, uh, when it came out, it, it was the, the, the thing they say about it, it was, that it was a detective drama, basically, on TV in thousands of years ago, when, when there was a, uh, a thing where every single time, uh, every single episode, the crime would happen in front of your eyes in, in the first scene. So the, the audience knew exactly what had happened. And you watched the detective figure it out. You watched him figure it out. You didn't sort of, it wasn't a mystery to the audience like it is in all the other dramas. And you usually get it wrong. But you got it right and he waited for him to get it right. And Matthew's a little bit like that. He's saying from the start, I tell you, from the start, who he is. But here's the thing. Here's the thing I love about this passage. 
Isn't it interesting that, that David, sorry, Matthew said up front, Jesus is the son of David. But he's waited until chapter nine, pages into it, years into the story, before any human being notices it, before you know, a Columbo comes along. And the people who do notice it, who are they? A couple of blind people. He chooses, he chooses really wisely. This is just like Matthew, if you noticed. As we're going through this, if you've been with us these last weeks or months, you might have seen he, he likes these ironic twists. He likes to make points like this. That it's the, it's the leper, it's the outcast, it's the, it's the foreigner. It's the one who, who who's should be miles behind, <laughs> but who somehow leapfrogs in their journey the people who should know, the people who should recognise Jesus coming a mile off, but they don't. The ones who apparently have got 20-20 vision spiritually, the Pharisees in this case, they, they don't just miss Jesus, they reject him and call him the devil. And the people that do see Jesus and welcome him as the son of David are the blind. And Matthew loves these kinds of ironies. He likes to say, look, your, your ability to see, <laughs> it might not be as strong as you think it is. You, you might think that you know. You might imagine that you know, but you could be very let down. You might be blind as anything. So Matthew's bringing out this, this difference in this story between the people who see who shouldn't see and the people who don't see who should see. He's also, just to, to make it interesting, thrown in another voice as well, which we could just call the crowds. The crowds. It's got that there in uh, verse 33. The crowds marveled, saying, never was anything like this seen in Israel. So you've got the general public and you've got the opposition and you've got the blind who get healed, who see Jesus clearly. And, and I want to do, in the rest of our time together, a bit of a survey of each of these three so that we can think for ourselves, which one am I in? Which category am I in? And what can I learn from these categories about how I respond to Jesus? That's what I want us to do. And the way to do it is actually to think like the hands of a clock. You know how a clock generally has three hands. You've got your, your seconds hand that moves the fastest of all. And you've got your minutes hand that moves not quite as fast. And you've got your hours hand that, that moves imperceptibly. You can't see it moving, but it, it moves. Interestingly, the one that matters the most is the one that moves the slowest. That's the one that in the end, usually you care about the most, which position that's in, usually. Seconds hand, there's a lot of clocks and watches that don't even have them, you don't bother with them because they're, they're not so important most of the time for what you need a clock for. And I think that's a little bit like what you've got in the story. You've got the crowds. The crowds are like the seconds hand. They move fast. They, they, are, they, they swing in their opinions. They're quick, they're responsive. The crowds marvel. And that's, that's kind of fun, you know, Jesus mania picks up. There's this kind of this big viral breakthrough for Jesus. It's gone crazy. It's hashtag Jesus time. Everybody's interested in Jesus. And that's the crowd for you. Jesus, it seems, doesn't see that as good enough. He's not actually that satisfied with fame. He's really not. 
Lots of retweets, lots of clicks and likes and followers. He can take it or leave it. It's not, in fact, in this story, it looks like he'd rather leave it. Because you notice, he said to the blind men when they got healed, he said to them sternly, warns them sternly, don't you go telling everyone about this. Really? Don't you want to be famous? Isn't that the whole point? Isn't that, you know, everything to you? Like it is to us. I want to be known. I want to be loved. I want to be liked. Jesus says, it's not the point. That's the second hand. It kind of moves fast and it's exciting. Here's the thing about a crowd. <laughs> it's kind of fickle as well. It can move fast, but move fast in a completely different direction within a week. You ever notice that with a politician or with a celebrity? Up here, down there, within a week. In Jesus' life, it was literally that way. Remember the last week of his public career. They welcome him into Jerusalem, all the crowds, Hosanna to the son of David. Within days, it's take him away and crucify him. That's the crowds. Jesus didn't come to win a crowd. Not really. Crowds, they don't really do it for Jesus. But then you've got the next hand, you've got the minutes hand, which goes a little slower, but you can still see it. You can still see a minutes hand move if you're patient. I've done this. <laughs> Some of you have too, uh, if you've got time to spare. You can see it move. And you can see this in the, in the, in the story of Jesus. You see, if you look at it, keep looking, keep reading, you notice there's the crowds, there's the marvelling, the thousands. Wow, listen to the miracles, it's amazing. But you just keep reading on and there's a few mutterings, there's a few people not so sure, a few questions, a few people not so sure, yeah, making some investigative documentaries about this man and, and then gradually a few quite, quite sharp blog entries and then eventually hostility, antagonism. He's demonic. So there's definite opposition gradually coming. It comes in on the coattails of the crowds, but it comes. And then you've got the hour's hand. The hour's hand moves so slow, like I said earlier, you can't see it move. And I don't advise you to try this. <laughs> Definitely wasting your time if you try looking at an hour's hand. Just walk away, come back later. And it's like that with what Jesus is looking for. What Jesus is looking for, not the second hand, he's looking for the out, he's looking for faith. That's it. In fact, I would prefer to use the word trust, because like we've said here at Emmanuel, sometimes people, they mess around with the word faith. We associate faith with stupidity. Jesus is not interested in stupidity. He's interested in trust. Do you trust me? Have you seen who I am, really? And do you trust me? That's it. When Jesus sees that, he says, okay, we're good to go. I can work with this. When he sees trust. Now, even if he has to wait around for a while, for hours, as it were, he'll wait. He'll wait. Because he's not that excited about retweets. He's excited about faith, even if it's slow, even if it grows like a mustard seed, tiny little seed, little bit of leaven in the loaf, just a little bit. That's all I want. That's all I need, just to see faith. When I see faith, I know that we're going to see the world change. Just, just with a gradual work. Jesus is like that. Jesus wants to see faith 
in our lives, more than he wants to see hype, immediate response. He wants to see faith. So let's look at how these things are distinguished from each other, starting with the, the crowds, all right, the seconds hand. The, the fact is that these, these people who are excited initially, who marvel at the, the teachings and then marvel at the miracles, the way they, the, the, the hope that they attach to Jesus is at least worth investigating. It's at least worth pausing over, as Jesus does, to see what is it you really hope for? What is it you're really looking for? Even phrases like this title, Son of David, you're the Son of David. Jesus, Jesus is not that impressed necessarily with people saying things like that, not necessarily. Partly because for so many people, the hope that they had in the, the rescuing king, the champion, the Messiah, the one we are talking about a few minutes ago, they attached to it basically a political hope. See, they were people who lived with a massive sense of dignity and destiny. We are Israel. We are the people of God. We are his covenant people. He's chosen us. He's loved us. But we've known nothing all our lives except being under the heel of the Romans. That's it. We've just been like, a, we've barely been surfacing. We've been like a, a conference team. We've been like, we've just been nothing. And we, we, we know that we belong with great hope and dignity and destiny, but we're squashed under the power of Rome. And so their, their hope for a heroic rescuer, deliverer, was very much mixed up with their sense of national pride. And it meant that really what they were longing for when they cried out things like, son of David, was basically, could you just stick it to the Romans for us? That's what we need from you. That's what we're hoping for from you. We have people over there who cause us grief and we would like them to be dealt with. So what we need is you to ride into town and take them out. That's what we want. Now, in a sense, not much has changed because the tendency that we all have, not just these first century Jews, but all of us, all of us, including you, the tendency is to relate to God as that person who, if he comes into my life to rescue me, that would be good, but, but I'd like him, what I want him to basically do is fix these people or fix these problems, fix things out there on the externals, on the edges of my life, the stuff around my life, the stuff that's, that's causing all the trouble, which is out there. We tend to do that, don't we? The problems we've got are the problems, it's, it's them, it's, it's her, it's, it's him, it's, it's that. It's this. And we, we externalize and we say, God, just come and deal with them. Take them away from me. Take them away from me. And then what we're kind of saying is take them away and take yourself away too. You, you, you can come, but you, you keep yourself at arm's length. You, I don't really want you in me. I want you out there solving my problems out there. Jesus 
isn't interested in that. He, 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 he keeps bringing the subject back to the real problem and he says again and again in different ways, he keeps saying it, the problem is not out there. You think it is, maybe because there are some problems out there, yeah, okay. Maybe you have got some problems with your boss or your parents or your kids or your money situation or your politicians. Yeah, you've got some problems out there, but you know, secondary at best. They are not your problems. The problem I've come to rescue you from, the problem I've come to deal with is actually the problem of you. A problem in here. It's an inward problem. It's a heart problem. It's, a, it's so profoundly tied up, tangled up with who you are. It's your resistance to God who made you. It's your wrongdoing. It's your... It's your selfishness, it's your greed, it's your pride, it's your constant preoccupation with your ego and how well you look. It's your commitment to, to your own ends in life as the priority. Even if you don't realise it, this is a problem. It's your lust. You're, you're, yeah, you're looking at porn. Your, your fascination with stuff that's actually degrading to people and you and you think it's fine it's it's stuff like that it's stuff like that that I've come to deal with that's the real enemy of your soul that's the enemy you need taking out I've come to deal with that enemy I've come to deal with that problem so if you think I'm going to ride into Jerusalem on a big horse with the cavalry deal with the Romans I'm going to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey and have the Romans deal with me. I'm going to be taken away by them. I'm going to be crucified by them. And in my body, I'm going to give myself for the great problem. The great problem you have. The problems that exist in your heart, in your mind. The wrongdoing, the things that you do, the things that you say, the things that you think that you know that you shouldn't. And the things that you should do, the things that you should say, the things that you should think that you, you know that you don't do. That's what I've come for. And all the guilt and all the shame, all the stuff you feel rotten about and all the confusion that causes, all the psychological damage, all the anxiety, the pressure, the exhaustion, the sleeplessness, the self-loathing, everything that comes in attendance with sin, I've come to deal with that stuff forever. And I'm going to. Through my self-giving on the cross, I will deal with the real enemy. That's Jesus. That's what he comes to do. But that's not what the crowds want, generally. It's not what the crowds are after. It's, it's deal with the problem out there. I wonder what you're like. I wonder what's in your heart, if you've understood your own need of him. Let's look, secondly, at the, the, the enemies, the opponents of Jesus, to just press this point through a little further, because it kind of makes the same point, in a way. It, the enemies, the, the Pharisees, in this case, the, the minute's hand of the clock... They're characterised by closed-mindedness to Jesus. 
quickly. Their minds are closed. They're quickly interpreting him as evil. They've made up their minds pretty fast, but not in, not in the right direction. They've decided, yeah, he's, he's, he's not to be trusted. In fact, he's a bad, infl- he's a bad guy. They've made up their minds. And the, the reason they've done it, in the end, is, is, it seems, in spite of the fact that they're supposed to be clearly insightfully wise they're the ones who you think can see as opposed to blind men they can see for some reason they can't see but it's because they think they can see it's because they think they're healthy that they don't think they need a doctor do you remember, we, if you were with us a few weeks ago, we, we looked at how Jesus called Matthew and there were those verses where Jesus said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. A Pharisee, almost by definition it seems, is somebody who doesn't feel the need of Jesus. Because, well, I'm, I'm good enough, thanks. I'm healthy enough. I don't need healing. I'm not blind. I'm no beggar. I'm fine. And so I don't need Jesus. And I rather resent the idea that I do. That's a Pharisee. And that's, that's, that's not what you thought was an, op- an opponent of Jesus, but I'm afraid that's the heart of our, our resistance, our rejection of Jesus, is our, our profound sense of self-sufficiency. I don't need him. I just don't need the healing, the salvation, the forgiveness, the eyesight that he provides. I don't need it. I can see clearly, thank you very much. I can see, I can see. The reality is the Pharisees are going blinder all the time. As Matthew keeps telling a story, you get to chapter 15, verse 13, and Jesus refers to the Pharisees as the blind leading the blind. They're getting blind of every page in their rejection, resistance to him. No, we don't need him. We don't need him. Because, well, I'm good enough. I'm fine. I'm, I don't need a saviour. And that's, that's such a dangerous place to be. You can have God show up to you in skin. You can be six feet away from God in human flesh, literally, and still not see him, not receive him, because you don't feel the need for him. See, people often say to me, I don't know if you've had this question, it's a good question, people will say, if, if you have to believe in Jesus to come to, to know God and be accepted by God and be with God after you die, what about people who've never heard of Jesus? What about people who live in countries, you know, thousands of years ago or hundreds of years ago where there was no, there was no knowledge of Christianity? What about them? That's a good question. And if you're thinking, he's going to give us the answer, not today. That's another, another sermon. And we, we will, we've, have we, we've got stuff on the website, we can help you with that. But, but let me say right now, the question presumes something. The question presumes that all we need is information, right? All I need is for someone to tell me about Jesus. Then of course I believe in him. Of course I will. Maybe not. These people had Jesus literally walk up to them, walk around them. And they rejected him. How? How can that be? What, what is, because, my friends, they, they don't 
They don't feel the need for him. They don't want him. The heart, it's the heart. It's not lack of information. It's heart resistance. And when you resist something in your heart, you will, you will pull up all kinds of conspiracy theories to reject him. Oh, he must be demonised. He's, he's defeating evil. <laughs> he's helping blind people see. He's helping mute people speak by the power of God. He, He's, doing, he's setting people free from the awful, oppressive power of evil. Mm, he must be evil. What? That's a really weird twist of logic. But you'll reach for it. You'll find out, oh yeah, but listen, no, no, look, Kev, go with me on this. He's, no, you don't understand. He's a double agent. Yeah, yeah, look, look think, think about it. Big plot twist. Think about this. You, you'll find ways to argue. Have you done this in your own life? Have you ever been so eager... To buttress up a lie that you tell more lies to yourself. We do this. The Bible says we do it as well. The Bible testifies to this problem within us. The Bible's very wise about the human heart. Deceitful above all things. Deceive ourselves if it means keeping away from a God who wants to turn our lives inside out. Well, I'd much rather have a lie, thank you very much. I'd much rather go for an illogical conspiracy theory than accept the possibility that Jesus wants to shine the spotlight on my heart and change me. So we reach for all kinds of sophisticated theories. Sometimes very impressive. They get into the newspapers. They, they, people write books. So just this last week, like on the Sunday Times last week, there was a, uh, a review by a historian, Tom Holland, who's, who's doing a brilliant piece on a, on, a, on a recent book by a scholar who's trying to point out all the ways in which Christianity has failed in its human rights record. And this is a book by a scholar who's saying, look, look Christianity, is, it's, 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 uh, it's got a terrible record when it comes to human rights. But deducing from that, therefore Christianity is false. Can't be true because it's got a bad human rights record. And Tom Holland is writing this review. And by the way, Tom Holland himself is not a Christian, as far as I know. But he makes this point. He says, hang on. If you're going to reject Christianity on the basis of its human rights record, just beware that what you're standing on in terms of your care about human rights, you would only care about human rights because you come from a culture that has been influenced by Christianity for hundreds and hundreds of years. That's where modern human rights as we know it have tended to come out from. That's the fruit of a culture that's been influenced by Christianity. So it doesn't work to say, let's reject Christianity because it's, it's not kept up to the wonderful standards of Christianity. It doesn't work. You can't do that. No, by all means, let's take Christianity to task. <laughs> let's repent if there are human rights abuses, which there are. And they're things to, 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 to grieve over and say, that's terrible. But if we, if we say, well, therefore, because Christians have done bad things, Christianity is false. My friend, it, it, it's not only... Does it not really win an argument if you think about it? But it's ultimately it's built on an illogical premise because you're, you're using Christian standards. You're accepting them as good before you try and say Christianity's bad. It's illogical. But we'll do it. <laughs> we'll get books published saying it. We'll get on telly. We go for theories to reject God. We, we pull levers to try and find anything, any conspiracy theory. Why? Because the, the alternative is the son of David comes into my life and doesn't deal with my enemies out there, deals with the enemy in here. I don't want that. So we reject him. 
Have you rejected him? Have you rejected him like that? Have you made up in your mind a construction of resistance and rejection without really being honest, without realising that you need Jesus, that you do, you do. Not just the people sitting next to you, you need a forgiving saviour who loves you enough to die on the cross for your sins. You need him terribly. You don't feel the need of him, it's not the same thing, you need him. More than you could possibly imagine, you need him. Pharisees didn't see it. The blind men, they saw it. Let's look last of all at the hour's hand, all right? This is the last bit, the hour's hand. They saw it. Let me see, how, how is there, the, the difference is that these guys, they turn to Jesus, they trust Jesus. That's it, simple as that. Jesus is looking for faith. And he sees it in these men. How is the faith shown? First of all, well, they suffer they're blind, but they turn their suffering into an occasion for prayer. They call on God. They come to God. They suffer and they don't do what we tend to do if we're in unbelief, if we're not trusting God. When we suffer, when we're afflicted, we say, that's enough of God. We, come, we push away from God. But what you need to, suffering, honestly, my friend, you need to know that your suffering comes to you as an opportunity for you to turn to God in trust. It's not, it's not easy, I don't say it flippantly. But that can happen, and that, that's, that's intended what we will easily do is, is instead resent God and turn away in bitterness. But look, look at these men, they're blind. How, I don't know what it did to their lives, ruined them, despised, marginalised, the dregs of society, beggars, blind men. No one looking after them, not good systems of care. Shameful men. I don't know how well they were treated. I don't know. Maybe some people were kind to them. Suffered. And Jesus coming through. Well, I've, I've, heard of, <laughs> I've heard of holy men. I'm not interested. But no, they, they turn and they call on him. The things that you go through, which may be very trivial in comparison to blindness, but all the inconveniences, all the things, even this last week. What did, what did the last inconvenience that happened to you catalyze in your heart? What did it do? Did it, did it make you say, I'm just, I, can't, I can't be doing with God? Or did it cause you instead to draw near to him and call on him? I, I suspect, because you're here, that it was the latter. But who knows? Maybe in your heart really still there's a, just a stubbornness and a resentment of God. Friend, you need to be set free. You need to turn in faith. Say, God, I call on you again. I trust you, I ask you. And the way they ask him, second thing quickly, they say, have mercy on me. Mercy. That's an important word. They don't come with their CV. 
They don't come proving anything. They've got nothing, nothing. That's, that's a big deal. Faith is not, God, you owe me because look what I've done for you. That's not faith at all. Faith is when you say, I have nothing. I come as a beggar. All I bring is shame, sin, guilt, stuff I know is wrong. But I come to you anyway because I believe that you are merciful. So I ask for mercy. You are a faithful, merciful, promise-keeping God. Please have mercy on me. That's it. If you come to God saying, well, I'm quite impressed with myself really and I suppose you ought to do some stuff for me, you're on very thin ice. Don't, don't go there, friends. Seriously, don't, don't even think of it. You need to be far more aware of your desperate need. Really live there. Live there. Live aware of your dependence on mercy. Keep, keep conscious of it. It's mercy. Every day is mercy. Some of us, you, you go through a week where you know you've blown it as a Christian. Oh, what a terrible thing. I've blown it. I've failed as a Christian. Why does this stuff happen? Well, one thing's for sure. It certainly helps to remind you that you need mercy, doesn't it? Keeps you humble. God, help me. Never, even when you have a good week as a Christian, don't even dream of coming to God saying, well, I've prayed every day. I've even fasted. I've given faithfully. I've read my Bible, shared the gospel with people. I think I've done really well this week. It's dangerous, friends. It's dangerous. Don't go there. Every day we come on the basis of one thing alone, his mercy, his mercy. Be overwhelmed every day by his mercy. Never lose the wonder of it. Be amazed at it. Keep reminding yourself of your desperate dependence. Be like these men. Have mercy on me. <laughs> it's the safest place to be. Last of all, quickly, they weren't offended by him. They had reason to be, if you think, you could have been offended. They could have been. You notice, it says, isn't it interesting? Jesus is moving from one place to another. It says, as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him. So what's happened? Think about it. What's going on in that story is Jesus is moving from one place to another. Presumably, there's a little while of traveling going on there. It wasn't instant. This is maybe a few hours for all we know. Certainly longer than, a, you know, it's not round the block because he's moving from the house of Jairus' daughter to the home where he's been staying, maybe Peter's house, who knows. But it's, it's a while. And all the while, these men are following him. Calling on him, blind. I mean, it's hard to follow when you're blind. How do you keep, just keeping up? It's difficult. It's embarrassing. It's shameful. Jesus, he doesn't answer them. He says he goes into the house. Just walks off. See ya. What? If you realise Jesus is like that sometimes. Some of you know from experience because you felt like that, right? Pray, pray again. I'm praying so much, but you just ignore me. Ever prayed and felt like this? Please, will you help? Will you show up? I'm following you. I'm following you, but you're not, you're not turning around. You're not helping. Why is he doing this? Why does, he, why does he treat people like this sometimes? And it's not the only time. You look through the Gospels, you'll see a couple other stories where he's a bit like this. 
comes across a bit rude sometimes. Please heal my daughter, one woman says. He says, no, I can't heal your daughter. You're not important enough. Or words to that effect. Why would Jesus say that? Why would Jesus behave like that? Is it because he's callous and cruel? No. It's because he's looking at the hour hand. Do you understand? He's watching to see if it's real faith. When you're offended by him. Jesus said, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. We have reasons for offence sometimes when we don't understand him. We don't understand why he doesn't jump to it. He doesn't answer our instant prayers. He just doesn't always fix things in the time. And you've got reasons to complain, reasons to quit, reasons to just forget it. Jesus is watching. He's not interested in the crowds, the seconds hands. Who cares about that? I'm watching these blind men. Hosanna, son of David, have mercy, have mercy, son of David. All right, okay, let's see, let's see. They keep following, they keep following, they keep following into the house. Awkward. Doesn't matter. Remember what he said a couple of chapters ago? Ask, it will be given. Seek, you will find. Knock, the door will be opened to you. Sometimes you have to do quite a lot of asking, seeking, knocking, don't you? Don't be offended. Don't be offended. Jesus says, according to your faith. I've seen it now. You guys, you've got it. The hour hand moved. I see faith. So which one are you? Which one are you? Are you the crowd? Second hand? Just, wow, amazing, Jesus, church, cool band, amazing, love it. Or are you, I don't really need Jesus. I don't really need you. I, yeah, my girlfriend does, but I don't. Or are you, I didn't realise, but I now know I've never needed anyone as much as I need you. And I will, I will break doors down to have you. I must have you. Let's pray together. We're going to come to the table in just a moment and take bread and wine. If you're a Christian and you love Jesus, then you're very welcome to the table. Come and welcome. If you're not sure if you're a Christian, if you're considering Christianity, if you're thinking through your journey, we would love to help you. We would love to talk to you. We will pray with you. I would be glad to talk with you. So please come and talk to me or one of the people at the tables with lanyards on. They'll explain it to you. They might pray with you if that's what you like. But when you're ready, and when we've stood up, you're welcome. Come to the table, take bread and wine. What you're doing is you're saying, Jesus, I trust you. Jesus, you are my food and drink. You are my supply. You sustain me. You strengthen. You heal. You keep me. You forgive me through your death on the cross. You're what I need. Father, we thank you for your son. We thank you for this gift of faith, this hour hand that moves imperceptibly, but we find in our hearts, I didn't used to trust him. I didn't used to care about him, but I, I do. I trust you, Jesus. I trust you, Jesus. We pray that you would give us this gift of faith more and more.
I pray especially for those for whom actually the issue is literally a physical sickness. We're seeing a whole story of healing here and we don't want to miss it, Lord. I want to pray this wonderful Saviour and healer would stretch out his hand in this room right now and bring healing to people's lives right now. Maybe even right now, you're just suddenly aware he's here. I pray for physical healing. I pray for emotional healing. I pray for change in our lives. Come through this place. Touch us. Heal us. Open our eyes. Set us free. Cut us loose from the bondage of evil. Surely as you did on that day. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand up together.